Good morning. We're going to be in Romans 16 this morning. Um, I almost entitled this sermon, The uh, Names from the Bible That No One Uses. There are a lot of them in here that uh, are, are pretty foreign to uh, our ears, and so I'm going to do my best with them. As we come to Romans 16, though, I'll just say this. I don't know how many of you uh, have seen Marvel movies, but Marvel movies have a quality about them that you'll notice if you go to a movie. At the end of the movie, when the credits start rolling, when everybody's really supposed to be filing out, people are still sitting down. And if you've, if you've experienced a Marvel movie for the first time and you, and you get up, and you're walking around, and you notice no one's, no one's getting up. Why are they not getting up? I don't understand why they're not getting up, and you feel a little awkward. So, so you, you think, I must be missing something. So you sit down. Because there are so many different post-credit scenes that give you exposition for what comes next in maybe another movie. Now, the temptation with a chapter like Romans 16, before I even read it, temptation with a chapter like Romans 16 is that we're done with the good stuff. The credits are rolling as he starts greeting people. It's like those credits that start rolling, and we tune out. But if you pay attention, there's something here about the exposition that matters for what comes next. Romans 16. And forgive me if I stumble over the names. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Syncrae. There you go. That you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronachus (laughs) and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my, and my beloved Stachius. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord of Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Esencretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes and the brothers who are with him. Greet Philoagus, Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with him. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord, but their own appetites. 
and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, as does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me in the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage, open it up to us. Open our eyes to what is here. Don't let us miss those post-credit scenes that give us exposition for what comes next. Father, having seen what comes next, open our eyes to the reality of how the whole teaching of Romans plays out in our lives and on our relationships and in the church. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was 24 and my wife, who was not then my wife, was 21, we met with a uh, church pastor. He was a Presbyterian pastor. I'm going to go ahead and say that because I think that's important to the story. We were going to get married in the church there in Chattanooga. And so it was required of us, even though we had someone to officiate, we had to have a church pastor sign off on our wedding. So we met with this, with this guy, and I happened to be going to the seminary that he went to, and we got into a conversation about that. And uh, we talked for a while, and he gave me a lot of advice. He said, you need to make sure that, that, that you don't land on tradition. Presbyterians are so traditional. He's like, you need to focus on the word. He said, when I was a seminarian, I, it grieves my spirit that I, I saw a, a, a Mooney one time, and I went over to him, and I, I asked him if he had read the Westminster Confession of Faith, rather than asking him if he had read the Bible. So he, had, he just urged us both, my wife and I, make sure that you just don't rest on tradition for the sake of tradition but make sure you rest everything on the word of God. And I just, thank you. Thank you for these wise words. Amen. And then he moved on to our wedding. And he said, so this is an evening wedding. Yes, it's an evening wedding. So you're going to wear tails, and she's going to wear gloves, right? And I stopped for a moment, and I almost laughed. Because I thought, is he joking? Because he's just said, don't rest on tradition, but he seemed highly offended by the idea that I wouldn't be wearing tails and my wife would not be wearing gloves. And I thought, this is quite a non sequitur. It doesn't follow what you just said. But that's the way that we are. A lot of times we have beliefs, deep beliefs, that should 
change the way that we live, should alter our perception, should alter our viewpoints, and yet we don't let these deep truths filter down into our everyday life. Well, mainly because there's a war going on within us. But also because sometimes we have this disjunct between what the word says and how we live. And Paul urges us here not to be that way. He urges us towards obedience in the faith. And he says that that obedience is going to change the way we live. Everything that has come before, from Romans 1 all the way through Romans 15, matters. This is a, a deep theological treatise. This is the, these are the most profound truths taught in Scripture. And if it doesn't change us after reading them, then I wonder if we even have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And so we see that the obedience produced by faith does two things here in this passage. We see the practical outworking of Romans 1 through 15 here in Romans 16. We see that the obedience produced by faith first embraces community that comes by self-sacrifice. And second, we see that it avoids division that comes through self-centeredness. So first, what is this obedience of faith? It's a faith that's properly rooted in Jesus Christ. And it produces in us an obedience that comes from that deep understanding of who Christ is and through that relationship. And when we're engaged in that relationship with Jesus, it transforms us. Paul doesn't call this an obedience apart from faith. He doesn't call this an obedience to get faith. He calls this the obedience of faith because it's produced by our faith. And he references that in verse 26. And in verse 19, he says, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. There are ten times in this passage that the phrase in Christ or in the Lord is used. And the reason for that is it's attempting to root us in union with Christ by the Holy Spirit. Because it's that union with Christ that transforms us. It goes back, if you, if you rewind to Psalm 1, and it talks about that tree that's planted by, by the water, and that it bears fruit in season and out of season. The reason it bears fruit is not because it's an amazing tree. It bears fruit because it's rooted right there by the water table, so that if drought comes it's still going to bear fruit. If it's, a, if it's a rainy season, it's still going to bear fruit. Why? Because the resource into which it's rooted gives it life. Similarly, you and I are not good trees. We are trees that are planted by streams of water. And in union with Christ, what that means is that being in Christ, we are we are rooted into the resources that he gives us through the Holy Spirit. He empowers us to live out these truths that we read here in Romans and to see them impact our lives. It harkens back, the, the phrase in Christ harkens back to, to John 15 when Jesus talks about how he's the vine and we're the branches. And he says these words, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
He doesn't say, apart from me, you can do some things and then you can do other things in me. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. There's nothing profitable. There's nothing that we're able to do. There's no obedience that we can muster up unless we are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. So Paul emphasizes that throughout this entire passage. Go through later this afternoon and read how many times he says, in Christ, worker, in the Lord, fellow brother, in the Lord, in Christ. Because union is a central theme here. And it's the background for everything that he's about to say. And we see that obedience that produces faith, first of all, impacts our relationships. How many times have you seen a disjunct between believers who believe the deep truths of forgiveness in Christ and yet can't forgive one another? Probably more times than you can count. Because sin is so invasive within our hearts. But what Paul is calling us to here is he's calling us to let that deep truth of who Christ is filter into and through our lives. And in doing so, it transforms our relationships. How so? Well, we see here that the obedience produced by faith embraces community that comes through self-sacrifice. Where am I getting that? Well, if you look through the passage and the greetings, you see at the beginning of, of chapter 16, Paul's comments first, in the first, very first verse about Phoebe, he calls her what? He calls her a sister. And that refers to the fact that the gospel transforms us and brings us into a family, a new family that we didn't have before. And he keeps going on. He says to welcome her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the saints. And what way is that? It's by treating her as family. And he, he shows how he's treating everyone else's family. If you look through there, he says, in verse 13, he says that Rufus's mother was like a mother to him. In verses 11 and 21, he refers to those men as kinsmen. We know that Timothy was not his kinsman. We know that he was not related to Timothy, but he counts him as family. He refers to um, the complete strangers from all nations as a new family, that Christ is calling forth a new people unto himself. And, and many of you experienced this when you came to know the Lord. I, I experienced it in a profound way. When I was 17 years old, my family had already stopped going to church. A point for which I was thankful when I was 13 and 14 years old. Because I didn't have to get up. I didn't have to go to Sunday school. I had a second Saturday, and I was very excited about that. But when I hit a certain point, when my parents divorced, and I felt this incredible sense of brokenness in my family, and the lack of family, what I found in Christ was not just salvation. I found a new family. 
And that was underscored by the fact that I was, I was in a Baptist church. Yes, I was a Baptist at one point. Wasn't always a Presbyterian. And we sang the song, and many of you may have sang it, sang it growing up, Family of God. It goes, I'm so, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain cleansed by his blood, joint ears with Jesus as we travel this sod. A little hokey rhyme, but okay. I'm part of the family of the family of God. And it goes on to say, you may notice we say brother and sister around here. It's because we're a family and each one is so dear. And that was exactly true when I would sing that song. I was experiencing that on a deep level because most of my friends and myself came from broken homes. This was our family. We knew what it meant when it, when it calls you brother or sister. And that's the common language of, of many churches. If you grew up Baptist, it was very common to refer to someone as, as brother this or brother that or sister this or sister that. Now, the Presbyterians don't necessarily do that, but they still kind of hold on to it a little bit, as formal as they are. Um, they still refer to people as fathers and brothers in a very formal way. And it's because it goes back to the fact that the gospel creates new relationships as deep as family, but not centered on our shared biology, but centered on our shared faith. How many times have you run into someone and you, you don't necessarily get along at first, but when you find out that they're a believer, it changes the dynamic. And then you maybe you begin to talk about your church or you begin to talk about something that you've read. And and the dynamic just shifts from one type of relationship to another. You know, I've experienced this in the negative way. And when I say that I've experienced this in the negative way, it's because um, I have, on a Sunday morning, been tailing behind somebody because they're in my way and I'm trying to get to church. And then they turn into a church And I suddenly feel this just deep sense of shame that I was just intimidating one of my brothers and sisters in Christ to get out of my way so I could get to church. How messed up is that? It's messed up enough if it was was a non-believer, but here I am tailing uh, tailing a believer and trying to get them to get out of my way because I'm thinking selfishly. But what this new community does is it causes us to embrace self-sacrifice. It's formed through self-sacrifice. This family is formed through self-sacrifice, and you see it throughout these verses. All you have to do is look through verses 3 through 6 and see how the overflow of their faith in Christ and their understanding of the sacrifice impacted their daily lives. In verse 4, it says Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila risked their necks for Paul. They put their own life on the line for his sake. But not only did they put their life on the line for his sake, they put their home and their privacy on the line for the sake of Jesus. It says their house was utilized for the kingdom as a church. People were going in and out of their house, tearing it up, using it as a place of worship. And they were willing to to have that happen because they believed 
in the kingdom work. And they knew these people weren't aliens coming into their home and, and, and wearing it out. These were brothers and sisters in Christ. And they were willing to sacrifice. Says Epinetus was the first convert in Asia. To be the first to embrace a faith that is literally not the faith of your entire country takes a measure of sacrifice. And some of you understand this because you were the first in your family to believe in Jesus. And you know how that feels. You know how ostracized you can be for that. When your convictions don't match that of the home in which you grew up. It takes a measure of sacrifice. Verse 6, it says that Mary, who has worked hard for you, in these, in these passages, repeatedly, we see self-sacrifice. Verse 7, Andronicus and Junia were fellow prisoners. They went so far as to go to jail for the sake of the gospel. And it says that they were in Christ before Paul, which means what? They knew him as persecutor first before they knew him as brother. And yet they still went to jail alongside him. You see in multiple places in this passage that these, were, these workers, they were working for the sake of the gospel. And here's the point. If we really look hard at what he's saying here, we see a picture of a church that's not just a community. It's a community. It's not lone rangers. It's not a bunch of individuals who have nothing to do with one another throughout the week. Their lives are interconnected. And second, it's sacrificial, not consumeristic. They gave of themselves for the work of the gospel. It's so easy in modern church culture to show up at church and expect that all our needs are going to be met and that everything that we want will be done from the songs that we want to be sung to the look of the church. And we've slipped away from the idea that the church's purpose is a community that glorifies Jesus Christ. And there's going to come a measure of sacrifice in that. That we're going to be called upon to let go of some things that aren't important for the sake of what's much more important. And that's the community around the word of Jesus Christ for the sake of glorifying him. So we see that the obedience produced by faith embraces a community that comes through self-sacrifice. But we also see that it avoids division that comes through self-centeredness. In verses 17 and 18, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. The threat to this community is deception. Paul tells us in verse 18 that such such deception comes from people who do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. It comes because of self-centeredness. And what these people do is they filter through the congregation, through people, and here's the great danger, people who are willing to give of themselves are easy targets for people who want to manipulate those who are giving for their own self-interests, for their own appetites. 
The contrast couldn't be clearer. The obedience produced by faith drives us toward a selfless seeking of the good of another. But division comes through those whose greatest desire is to serve themselves. And Paul tells us to avoid them. And he tells us to avoid them because he knows that danger for those who are self, self-sacrificial in giving to latch on to somebody who is in need and be used by them. But how will we know them? Well, Paul tells us a couple of different ways to know them. First, he tells, them, uh, tells us we'll know them by their doctrine. They create divisions by teaching either what is contrary to sound doctrine or that doctrine doesn't matter. And you will know that they're a false teacher or someone who's working through the congregation to move people from community to division because they will push that which is not biblical. Many times people today say doctrine divides, but doctrine clarifies. Truth clarifies. It brings us to the same page with one another. Lack of doctrine gives us all kinds of different views that will ultimately split us. I remember when I was a child, um, I used to ride the bus and I had a friend who, as children do, got in a fight about uh, how tall our dads were and who could beat up whom. And as the fight engaged, our dads became bigger and bigger, more powerful. I mean, we had Iron Man versus uh, Captain America at one point. And uh, at, at a certain point, my dad got to be seven feet tall and had a bulletproof chest, which is ridiculous because that's not who my father is. Essentially, what I'm saying is my father is one thing, but he's actually another. There was no unity between the two of us. And typically in our, in our, our churches, we, we get to the point where when we say God is one thing and he's not, it causes divisions. You see it today. There's a lot of churches that, that teach things about God that are not true. But then they'll come, but these people will come in and say, let's not fight. Let's agree. Come on. It doesn't matter if, if Jesus is the Son of God or not. Let's just be unified. But that's not true unity. That's not true community. That's actually division. And Paul says to watch out for those who will promote doctrines that are not true. Paul references the serpent, I believe, in verse 20 when he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And it's a reference back to Genesis 3 when God promises that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And it shows here that The true source of deception, Satan, will work in and through us and our own self-centeredness and our own feelings and emotions at the center to judge God by our feelings and emotions. And that's what we've entered into as 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 a church culture today. God is on trial. Because if what he does does not square with how I feel, then he's wrong and I'm right. And you have a whole lot of people promoting that sort of idea. How will we know them? 
We'll know them by the fact that they teach either no doctrine or false doctrine. But we'll also know them by their manipulation. It says that they are given to smooth talk and flattery. In verse 18 it says that they use this smooth talk and flattery as the means to deceive the hearts of many. And why is it so hard to spot this type of manipulation? Well, because flattery can seem so much like encouragement. And because it also meets the needs of our flesh for praise. Flattery can seem a lot like encouragement. Flattery is defined as excessive, insincere praise, especially that given to further one's own interests. The word here is the word where we get eulogy. And it's just simply a word for praise. So why has it become flattery in this passage? It's the context. And praise is praise, but we know by discernment through the Holy Spirit the difference between flattery and encouragement. The purpose of encouragement is when someone comes along and their desire is to see us edified in the Lord. They're not asking for anything from us in return. They're giving, they're building up for the sake of Christ. A flatterer, on the other hand, comes in and will praise us, help us. But then there will always be an asking. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. You remember when I came to you and I said this? I need this. They're always asking for favors. They're always asking for you to do something for them. It is a praise that is ultimately centered on you that leads back to them. And those who are insincere, it's the insincerity of their praise that is truly dangerous to the people of God. It goes back to the garden again. When the serpent comes to Eve and says, God knows that the day that you eat of this fruit, that your eyes will be open and you'll know the good just like God does. Wouldn't God want that for you? You're a great person, Eve. Adam, you over there who's being quiet, not saying a word. He thinks you're awesome too. Why would he hold back this fruit from you? And, they, and the serpent played on their frustrations with God or their, the limitations and the boundaries that, that God had placed before them. And Satan, that old flatterer and the serpent, came and just began to say, look, you know, I'm on your side here. I'm on your side. I want what's best for you. Are you really sure? Did God really say that you're not supposed to eat this? You're not going to die. This is for your betterment. And you know it. You've seen people like this. You've heard people who say, did God really say? And they begin to subtly twist, playing off of your own emotions about a subject for the purpose of manipulating you to their point of view. It's rampant in the church today. There are many talking heads out there who will 
appeal to your emotions, appear to, appeal to your broken sense of fairness and say, this can't possibly be what God said because he wants this for you. And slowly and subtly, you are moved towards that which is antithetical to what Christ wants for you. What's the antidote for that? The antidote for both false and anti-doctrine divisiveness and flattery that appeals to our flesh is the same thing that spurs us on towards self-sacrifice, and that is a deep abiding faith in Jesus Christ in union with him. Okay, practically, what does that look like? It looks like this. I securely know who I am in Jesus Christ, and I securely know who he is. If my faith is at a level where I don't understand the character and the nature of of the God that I serve, my faith is at a level where I'm vulnerable to attack. If I'm insecure in who I am and not secure because of what Christ did, if my whole heart is not rooted in what Christ has done, and that defines me rather than my sin or my ambition or my self-image or any of that, then I'm prone to manipulation. Because manipulators prey on insecure people. So the antidote for that is security. When someone comes alongside you, you know, you're really awesome. You're a great person. And your head starts to puff up a little bit. The antidote is this. Apart from him, I can do nothing. I know where my giftedness comes from. It doesn't come from me. Whether it's natural gifting or whether it is spiritual gifting, it doesn't come from me. It comes from a God who made me and a God who remade me. There's nothing special about me. It's all of Christ. But the moment you begin to shift toward, you know, I am. You know, God really did a good job when he brought me into the kingdom. Because, you know, I'm pretty effective here. That's when your heart begins to be manipulated. And you cannot be preeminent in your own eyes and also have Christ be preeminent. Those two things don't go together. One serves the other. And when Christ reminds us of that union, he reminds us, in him, in him, in Christ, through Christ, because of Christ, in his power, all of these things are possible. Apart from me, you will fail. I treasure with some fleshly resistance at times. I treasure my failures. I treasure my failures because many times I have failed to seek Christ and he's let me fall flat on my face. And that's his love and his mercy towards me because he reminds me, this isn't about you. It's about me. And the moment you start thinking this is about you, you move away from the self-sacrifice that builds community 
and you move towards those who manipulate your heart towards selfishness, which would bring division. I think this is, and I'll close with this, this is most poignantly seen in when someone comes to you to rebuke you. I remember when I was in uh, campus ministry, uh, I was saying some things and acting in some ways that needed an obvious rebuke. And I heard that there was a girl in our group who, who noticed that and was talking about that. And um, I wanted to talk bad about her. <laughs> I went to her and let her say her piece. And I didn't like hearing it. But those words were true. I deserve rebuke. I would like to say every single time that I receive rebuke that I receive it well. The older that I get, the more deeply I understand that, that my self-worth is not in what I do, but in what Christ has done, it transforms the way I see. But on that day, God granted me the ability to hear her rebuke and to apply it to my heart, which pulled me away from that divisiveness that was forming within our group and back toward repentance that had me seek restoration with this individual. Where are your hearts this morning? Have you allowed thoughts to creep into your life that pull you away from the the people of God? Are you viewing church as a place that is to serve your needs or a place where you can sacrifice and pour in your life for the sake of the kingdom? Only Christ knows where you are, but his promise is the obedience that comes from faith, that is produced by faith, can and will transform our lives through Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I stand as a broken and sinful person amongst people who are broken and sinful. The only way that we stand before your throne is by Christ alone. And in Christ alone, May that only and always be our worth before you. May we never try to hold up our filthy rags and say that we are self-justified. Learning those deep truths of Romans, may they be applied to our hearts by your Holy Spirit and transform the way we live in the church and through our relationships. It's in Jesus' name we pray.